Welcome to another episode of the Other Half Podcast. I'm Jola. I'm Travis. I'm Cheryl. And welcome to our podcast, which features, which is basically just three friends talking about life. Questions. Perspectives. And Jesus. So this episode's a little bit different. <laughs> um... It started off as a bonus, and then it just kind of grew into a full-blown episode. Um, a little bit of a trigger warning here. We are going to be talking about some very heavy things, and your feelings might get hurt. That is not our intention, but if it does, that also probably means it's working. So, Trav, would you like to introduce our topic today? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, to introduce it, I'll also say that even though this is, this is a full episode, we aren't doing our regular format. We usually start off with highs and lows for all of us hosts. But this whole topic is kind of a low and we're all living in it. And so we just wanted to take all the time we could for this episode and dive right in to the meat of the topic. And we wanted to talk about a Christian's call to battle against white supremacy. And I think this is an especially relevant topic uh, for Christians who live in the United States of America, and uh, most most especially for white Christians who are living in the United States of America. Not that the battle doesn't belong to all of us, it certainly does, uh, but some of us have some more learning, unlearning, and work to do than some others, or at least um, we need to become more aware of it than others might already be aware of. So yeah, um, in case you have not figured it out <laughs> um, from the title of said episode um, that Travis already um, kind of mentioned it, we are, this is basically a call to battle against white supremacy because it is a sin. And I know Cher, you um, dropped in our group chat a little earlier, a verse that kind of um, was a foundational piece for this episode as well. Would you read that? Sure. Yeah. And I also want to add before I read that if we say something that you disagree with or just hits you wrong, uh, one of the things I found is if I'm encountering information that I just really am bothered by, it's either really true or really wrong. And I would encourage you to reach out to us because don't just process it in a vacuum. You know, reach out to us. You know us. Maybe you don't. Reach out to us at uh, our email address or us personally, because we want to process this with you. And so I was just quoting this verse to Travis and Jola, which is from 1 John 3, 18 through 20. Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. Our actions will show that we belong to the truth. So we will be confident when we stand before God. Even if we feel guilty, God is greater than our feelings and he knows everything. And it is in that spirit that we are um, calling our brothers and sisters in Christ to truly reflect on and question, do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ who may not look like you? And what is the evidence, the fruit of that? Um, again, this, this topic is not, um, we're, not, we're not covering it to hurt feelings or to offend, but if it happens, hashtag sorry, not sorry. Um, in fact, like Cheryl said, we do encourage you to lean into that discomfort. Um, reach out to us at Other Half Podcast 
um, hello at otherhalfpodcast.com or at our website, otherhalfpodcast.com. You can reach out to us through our contact page that way as well. And we will definitely um, reach out to you to kind of process and work these things out as well. But um, we really have to take a good look at ourselves into the mirror and figure out why we are turning lives into hashtags. Um, if you are, have been on social media anytime in the past three, four, five years, you've seen um, the Black Lives Matter movement and how we, those of us who are a part of it, have really um, strived to make sure that those that have died in this particular way because of this um, particular sin are not forgotten and we say their names. Um, this is not an exhaustive list at by any means but not at all just to kind of highlight the uh, those we want to remember um, mike brown tamir rice trayvon martin freddie gray philando castillo sandra bland atatiana jefferson Botham st john sean reed and so many 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 more across the nation um the latest of which we are hearing um is ahmaud arbery from georgia and brianna taylor in Kentucky, and um, both the both situations came to light about a week ago, and mm -hmm. they both caused a bit of up, uproar among, on social media, um, which did move um, the powers that be into action, which we are grateful for. But at the same time, we're still keeping our foot on their necks because it's not over. This is only the first step in, on the path to justice. However, I, would, I was disheartened to, to really see the difference in reaction between um, the death of Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor in that um, Ahmaud was slain by civilians. Yes. Um, and for all intents and purposes, it looks like he was actually hunted down. I would Brianna, call it lynching. It, it, you might call it lynching. In fact, I do believe it fits that very fits that definition very, very well. Um, you might say the same for Breonna Taylor, except hers was not by a civilian. It was by the police force. And I think that particular um, distinction has really tempered a lot of reaction as well because you don't see necessary you don't see near the outcry or near the what's the word i'm looking for near the passion passionate response from those who also you know called out for justice for ahmad yeah and i think something in that is uh it's been a couple months since uh the ahmad lynching happened and it just this last week or so made waves and on a national level. And I think the same is true of Breonna Taylor in that it was uh, in the shadow and in the wake of that same news feed, right? And so it's getting less attention. But I think you're right that the component uh, involving who did the shooting is a big part of what's getting attention or why Breonna Taylor is not getting attention. And it seems to me that uh, whenever there's a police-involved shooting, as they say, or whenever uh, a police officer has killed somebody, uh, 
whether they're on duty, off duty, retired or not, uh, uh, I think especially if they are on duty, we get less skepticism. We get less outrage. Um, of course, a lot of those names we mentioned, uh, Mike Brown, Tamir Rice, Trayvon Martin, et cetera, uh, a lot in that list did involve police who were on the clock, and a few didn't. Obviously, Trayvon, Trayvon Martin was uh, dealing with Zimmerman, who was not an officer at all. But you think of guys like uh, young boys, like Tamir Rice, and it's an officer on duty. And Breonna Taylor is one of those instances where you have police who are involved in the shooting, and for whatever reason, police get more of a pass. Uh, even though in both cases, the same, uh, I guess, loopholes or laws, uh, the same standards of morality kind of give people the pass, right? So saying, I feared for my life is often all it takes to justify a shooting. And uh, in both instances, uh, well, actually, I haven't heard it said about Breonna Taylor. So I don't want to say that anyone's feared for their life there. Um, and maybe you two have more information. But when police are involved, we do seem to give them more of a pass because uh, I think especially white folks in America tend to agree with or side with the authorities. We tend to trust police officers because they're sworn to serve and protect. And we have this inherited trust in that system, in the system of justice. And I would dare say it's because it has profited us and it has been built to be to our benefit throughout history, uh, which is a hard thing to hear. But um, historically, we know that uh, people of color get the raw end of the deal, the bad end of the stick when it comes to the police uh, and their policing, their violence. So. We tend to trust, we as white people tend to trust the authorities more. And if it's their word versus the word of a victim, especially if that victim can't speak, we tend to go with it or give them a pass or trust the system that they're trained in. Because, hey, I mean, that's justice, right? And so I think we don't question it enough. And that's why we give less attention to those deaths that happen at the hands of officers. I do want to give um, give a little more background on Brianna Taylor. Um, there was a little bit of I fear for my life in that her boyfriend who was with her also was um, certified concealed carry. The police did not um, make their presence known as police officers, though he had his firearm and he did return fire. And so he is actually being held on a charge of attempted murder, which in the term in the entire situation just really just it another injustice upon injustice it, it just can yeah. can you paint real briefly a uh, a picture of the entire episode of brianna taylor because i think a lot of us now are familiar with ahmad mm -hmm. uh and what happened there but because brianna taylor hasn't gotten as much attention could you frame it up really fast sure um, Brianna Taylor was a first responder, or I don't want to say first responder, I know, uh, essential worker. Yes. She was a first responder um, in an EMT, I believe. I think so, yes. An EMT. She 
um, was sleeping in her apartment with her boyfriend. And apparently the police were coming to serve a warrant for um, drug charges at her address, even though the person that they were looking for um, had been apprehended hours earlier. They still came out to this address. Um, they came, knocked on her, or um, kicked in the door from what I understand, did not identify themselves as police. Her boyfriend, you know, in thinking they were being broken into, did what any normal American would do who carries a firearm, was getting up to protect his family and his things. And um, I believe 20 shots were fired, eight of them hitting Brianna. She was in her bed and died. And just the thought that, you know, it, it actually makes me think of an, another account um, back in the 1960s when we were fighting for our civil rights, where I, I need to find this story because I cannot remember exactly who it is, but I know a civil, um, a civil rights activist hid from, from the Klan who was coming into um, into his home to look for him, hid in the fireplace and saw and witnessed them kill his wife who was laying in bed because she was there and they couldn't find him mm. to, to kind of send the message. And like the parallels to this thing, like we can't do anything without being killed. Yeah. Because being black is a crime. Um, but I think I like what you were saying, Trav, where most white people in America have grown up trusting the police. And I think that's something we do need to explore because um, in order to get, in order to move forward, we really do need to look back. How did we get here? Um, Before we do that, can I make a couple of comments? Yes, ma'am, sorry. Um, no, it's okay. I So like we make statements like it's illegal to be black. And I think that people are gonna be like, well, that's not true, you're right legally it is not against the law to be black but when the action of police and the action of civilians results in the fact that people doing things that those who are white do and they don't face you know if you've ever gone into a construction project and you never thought that someone was then going to chase after you in a neighborhood you know i've done that before or where we talk about how well you know they have a criminal history um so do i if you've ever had a, a parking ticket or a speeding ticket or have broken the law in any way. So I would challenge our listeners to think about, have I ever broken any law ever? So when we're talking about someone's criminal history, I would hope that we could also say, I too have a criminal history. Very few people do not have a criminal history. You know, my husband, who's one of the most polite, studious people on the planet, he, you know, is Fitzwilliam Darcy. He absolutely plays by the rules. And yet he, as a teenager, you know, picked up a manhole and rolled it down a hill in a golf course. That's absolutely against the law. <laughs> and so, yeah, and it's hilarious. But like, if a group of black teenagers had done that in the golf course where he was, it wouldn't have just been boys playing a prank. It would have been, you know, thugs who were there causing a ruckus. And so I want us to think about how um, sometimes we use language where someone may be offended by Jola saying, you know, it's illegal to be black in America. What we run into is when actions are set up as a, um, a specific pattern of behavior, it de facto feels and then becomes a reality for people, wherein practice demonstrates um, belief. And so 
I want us to consider, am I, like if I were in someone's shoes, do I have any criminal history that would make, maybe you're fishing without a license or, you know, something that we're like, oh, this is dumb, it's on my record. Well, okay, but is that going to be used against you in something where you come to harm later on? And I also wonder, you know, we're talking about how one is a civilian shooting. I don't know if that we can really say that when one of the people involved in Ahmad Arbery shooting is a form of former police officer. So I think they're both police based. And I wonder if the outcry is much more rooted in the fact that we have video footage of one and we don't for the other, that Absolutely. in the same way that the Vietnam War totally, you know, war has existed, mm -hmm. um, has existed since pretty much, you know, Cain and Abel. It was the beginning of, you know, war really existing. But it, the Vietnam War is where we can look at American history and see how our perception of war changed, where we were sending our young men abroad to go and fight and kill um, because that's part of war is people die. Uh, but in the Vietnam War, where my dad was, was sent, he went on three tours in the Vietnam War, had two Purple Hearts, was wounded twice, and my childhood was exceptionally full of trauma due to that fallout. Um, you then had people seeing war in their home, on the TV screen, and I think that that is what these, you know, whether it's body cameras or someone's cell phone footage is, is doing. It's changing the narrative that we hadn't been confronted to, to look at, where before it was yeah, it's some story and I'll look at it where now you're being confronted with, well, what do I do with this picture in front of me? What do I do with a war where children are wearing bombs and blowing up soldiers? What do I do where someone's jogging through a neighborhood? And yeah, maybe he did come back, but these are guys still chasing him with a weapon. And yes, they have the right to, you know, be vigilantes. And he also has a right to stand his ground and their rights are infringing on one another. And the same is true with Kentucky. Kentucky is a stand your ground state where Breonna Taylor was. It's important to understand that at some point when um, someone's life is at the end of that, we need to consider, do I want to use my rights to the point where I'm going to snuff out someone's life or my right to do something then steps over someone's rights where in their life no longer exists. And so I just want us to be thinking of that as we- And honestly, as Christians, I think we, we have the answer to that. Do I, as a, as a Christ follower, have the right to snuff out someone's life. And I would say no, where we're called to wash the feet of those who we, with whom we disagree and want to oppress us. You know, that part of showing love is to wash the feet of someone. In Roman culture, the reason it says, you know, if they ask you to carry it for a mile, carry it too, because the, a government, so imagine a police officer comes to you and says, here, I want you to carry my battle gear. Like a SWAT officer comes and says, I want you to carry my battle gear that would be a Roman centurion saying, come carry my stuff. And it was the law that you had to carry it a mile. And Jesus is saying, carry it a second mile. Wash the feet of those who oppress you. Um, submit to them. Turn the other cheek. That we're called to a totally different response. And even where he said, you know, we have our foot on their throat. I would say, I have my wash basin ready to wash your feet. Because I'm not called to have my foot on your throat. I'm called to come and change your mind through kindness, that it's through kindness that the Lord brings repentance. And like, I battle with that because, you know, I have a teenager who's taking a skateboard downtown and I see these shootings and I just go, oh Jesus, please be with my teenager. <laughs> and it makes, you know, Travis and I talked about this, the conversations I have with my sons is different than the conversations Travis has with his sons yep. based on what they have the freedom to just do and be 
in the United States. You're raising two boys of color, and I'm raising two uh, super Scandinavian white boys. Yes. And my boys even are different complected. Joel and I have talked about this. You know, she's super dark complected. Um, One of my kids is more of a caramel tone. One of them is darker. Um, And you can see if you're ever going, Cheryl, it's not true. Come with me and just watch how people treat my two boys differently. Um, They treat my son who's darker skinned differently sometimes. Not always, but sometimes. So sorry, my my 25 cents worth. Go ahead, Jola. (laughs) No, it's true. And I I believe colorism is something we might address later on down the road. Um, I think we should also have an episode on violence. That, well, yes. (laughs) In general. And um, I have thoughts to your to your <laughs> yes, we know you have thoughts, <laughs> lots of them, and I'm sure anyone who follows you on Facebook has also knows you have thoughts. Yeah. Um. To your um point on the phrasing of um being kind to our oppressors, as a Christ follower, I see where that is, but I also at the same time. The killing them with kindness, I feel, is also killing us. So at what point do we say enough is enough? Um, did it kill Jesus? That's my question for you, that though, it did. also. It like, did that's kill the Jesus. Like, that's the tension yes. for me. It's like, yeah, like, Representative Joe Lewis wasn't killed, but Dr. King was. Mm-hmm. Um, like, some of my heroes, Angela Davis, not killed, but still standing up for the fight. Um, if you don't know who Joe Lewis is, and you don't know who Angela Davis is, look them up. You will be a better human being for just reading through their stuff. Um, but that is like the tension for me, Joel, all the time mm-hmm. of, you. Know, I mean, you know me, I have a violent history and I've had like, it's Jesus alone that makes me not fight people and not throat punch people. Um, you know, we often joke that if someone attacked us, Chris would try his best, they'd knock him out. And then I have to defend my family as a trained fighter and that is something I really struggle with. Um, you know, Jesus, I want to resist, but what does peaceful resistance look like when I know that it's nearly always going to cost me my life? True. But I also, I, it's okay to we disagree. Are too, no, it is. Cause we disagree about lots of things. Um, which is also the beauty of our friendship and this podcast. Because my other thought is also, if we are constantly dying um, for the sake of kindness, at what point is the oppressor going to look at the oppressed and be like, "Mm, maybe I should stop. So that is where, um, because it is never up to in the power structure, it is never really up to the oppressor to, or the oppressed to um, make the, the the oppressed cannot make the oppressor stop oppressing. And so even in kindness, in um, having people see their humanity, but I think we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, we're jumping down. Um, But let's um, take it back. We have a few questions when considering America's past. Um, we have heard over the past four or five years um, that, you know, we want to make America great again. And so... The, have we the, done that yet? Are we there? I mean, so much winning, right? Aren't you just sick of the winning? 
I'm exhausted. <laughs> um, and this sounds political, but here's my little caveat. Everything is political. <laughs> because yep. politics are the business of our lives. So yep. if, if you are now turned off because we're getting political, I want you to lean into this. And, and come from the perspective that every that politics affects every area of our lives. So if we're not um, if we're not being involved in politics, what how are we advancing the kingdom? Uh-huh. That being said, um, we have heard that you know we want to make America great again. And and I pose two questions to that: When was America great, and for whom was America great? And there's been polling done, actually, that answers that first question. And the majority of people who would say America has been previously great and there is a type of time we should return to, it is, on average, the 1950s. Uh, And America was great in a lot of ways in that time. And a lot of the ways it was great was for a particular uh, demographic of people. It was the white people. <laughs> Not <laughs> just white people, white males as well. And yes, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, and so when we're looking at that question, most people's answer for it is pretty concrete. And uh, everyone's going to obviously have a different answer. Uh, but the spirit of the question is, has America ever been perfect? Has she ever been faithful to the value she has espoused? Um, and I, I don't think America has ever been a faithful spouse to her people and uh, or his people, you know, however you want to frame it. But uh, like when you look at the Constitution and we say everyone is created equal, that doesn't mean every human being is created equal with every white male property owner. It literally was by uh, the standards of the time, by the language of the time. That's what they're saying. Because later you have people saying, I am a man. Like I'm not three fourths of a person like uh, you white folks have considered us people of color to be. We're not a fraction of a person. We're a whole person. We deserve property. We deserve freedom. We deserve uh, all the same rights that you do. And so it's pretty clear for anyone who has studied American history, especially from voices of people who are not white, that uh, America has been great primarily uh, for white people. I mean, it's just, it was built on the backs of people of color. It was started with genocide of uh, the native people living here. So it's hard to look at America and I don't want this to sound like a total bash on the United States because there are many, many, many things that all three of us absolutely love about this nation that are good, that should be embraced. And the values in the constitution, like everyone is created equal. We're saying yes to it. Like let's live in it. Um, James Baldwin said, I love America. I truly love America. Uh, And it's why I insist on being able to critique her perpetually uh, is you make better those you love the most. And so we are people who love America. I love living in this country and what it affords me, not because I'm a white male who has a lot of privilege, um, 
though the benefits and the comfort of that that I know of and don't know, of course are nice. But the opportunities that it says uh, it offers to everyone equally, which I know is untrue, I like that idea and I want us to live into that reality. And I think it's very important to really um, define that what the patriotism we're talking about, because I think, um, especially over the last decade or so, patriotism has been very, um, or actually has been substituted with nationalism. We are patriotic in that we believe in the ideals and the freedoms and rights espoused by the Constitution, like Travis said. What does what that does not mean, however, is that we believe that those rights should put our country and our countrymen above any and everyone else just because. Like, life is not really a competition. No. <laughs> like, we are operating, I feel like the different, for me at least, the difference is nationalism operates from a scarcity mindset, whereas our patriotism is coming from an abundance mindset. Hmm. There is enough for all of us. We don't have to fight. Well, and are we not all better as we succeed together? I mean, <laughs> the idea that I am, my success is only valuable if others do not succeed is, I would say, contrary to what Jesus says he wants for us, which is to have an abundant life in him. And it's, it's always fascinating to me that the idea that in order for my success to be valuable, that means someone else is not successful. I would, my dad would talk about how, if not all Americans, if all Americans are not free, for instance, you know, he served with men of color overseas and they came back and still got to be called boy. Um, he talked about how for him that cheapened his service and it cheapened his own freedom. If not everyone had the same access to freedom as he did. And that was something he talked to us a lot as, you know, he was a Marine and that was something that was talked to us about as we traveled. And I mean, I don't think it's any surprise to my parents that my family looks the way it does. And they raised me that, you know, Yes, I recognize that people have different skin colors, but I don't establish value on others based on their skin color. That I want to see all people, you know, we consider these to be, you know, we've kind of walked around that quote from Thomas Jefferson that is we, <laughs> we, can, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and they are down by their creator. And if we really believe that God has created all people in his image, equally, you know, they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, that that would mean that my pursuit of happiness needs to not hinder another's life, life, liberty, or pursuit of happiness. And if we end their life, they no longer have liberty or the pursuit of happiness available to them. So true. And I think um, you touched about that because, you know, as we're moving from that history piece, like what does that look like today? You're talking about how you're, how we, or how your family raised you to um, not assign value. And I think that is very, I think, I love the way you said that because I think it is very, um, very specific and very intentional because so many people want to say, well, I don't see color. I'm like, but if you don't see color, you have then missed a large part of me because 
I can't take this off. <laughs> it's stuck. It don't come off. And the systems and the rest of society and people who don't like your color, oh, they definitely see it. Exactly. Yeah. So, and the, the intention behind it is so good. Like, of course, we know you mean you want to see and treat everyone equally with uh, proper value and worth. Awesome. But yeah, that phrasing of I don't see color is like you're saying. Yeah. Well, well you don't think, see you don't see the past of people like me. Yes. And I think you also um, you mentioned like you want to treat everyone equally. Well, equally is not equal is not what we're going. We're going for equitable. Boom. And there was a difference. We want everyone to get what they need. Not everyone get the same thing. Yes. So <laughs> because words mean things. Um, <laughs> well, and that's a good point that we don't all need the same thing. But right. being able to get what you need is important. Mm -hmm. Having because that I don't need I don't need glitter, but Jola for sure needs glitter. I'm like that crap <laughs> needs to get out of my house. But like I know that she's gonna want glitter, and like I'll tolerate it because I love her. But the, I don't need glitter in my life to exist. But she for sure needs glitter because sparkles so make me happy. Like a tried example. Right. And it's maybe a trite example, but I think that that's sometimes what we're looking at. We're like, well, equally, but equitably is an important difference. And if you're like, what is the difference? Please get a dictionary and look those up. And if you're like, that's stupid, you guys use those words wrong, send us an email because we'd love to have a farther conversation about it. So like, as we're talking about that, because, you know, we have lots of people who are like, you know, I don't see color. So what does racism, racism really look like? today is what is it over because you know we had a black president so racism is over right wrong. <laughs> so wrong. and if anything i think we're actually in the midst of a back um a backlash which history shows that every time there has been any kind of progress in civil rights for people of color there it is immediately been a white backlash and so that i feel like that is what we are living in um and if you want to do some research on something fun, uh, look at the dates that uh, um, like Southern heroes have been given monuments, uh, Confederate monuments. Look at when they've been established and look at the uh, historical markers of progress for people of color in the US and put them together. Because like you're saying, there are waves and those monuments come up anytime people of color have made progress in this country in a major way. What were you gonna say, Cheryl? Oh my goodness, I'm trying to think now. Um, so we're talking about like, what does racism really look like? And I would wanna challenge us who are Christians um, to consider that this is also um, something where we can resist Satan, that this is spiritual warfare and we need to see it that way. When you do that timeline and do what Travis is talking about, you're gonna see how Satan is working to thwart progress where God is calling us back into that Eden lifestyle, calling us back to live naked and unashamed, to live you know, where we're not slaughtering or slaying our brothers and sisters. And that is what God's calling us into. And it really is, I think, a huge piece of spiritual warfare that we don't always talk about. And we're saying, you know, what does racism really look like today? And I would like to tell a story, um, Jola, it involves Jola and myself, where we used to get together for coffee every, every single Thursday. 
um, for the last little bit of us being in college and then afterward for several years after as we were all a group of our friends who were getting into our careers and not once but twice Jola while driving me back home uh, was pulled over at night for driving in the dark for she committed no crimes as in the car with her um, she signaled turned within seconds was pulled over and the officer came over to ask her for her license and her registration. And I had been in the car before where police had pulled over my friends, of either pulled me over or my friends of color. And several times when I was driving, they'd ask my friends of color for their ID before they asked me. And so I immediately just said, here officer, here's my ID. And he said, why are you giving me this? And I said, well, if my friend Jella were sitting where I am, you'd ask her for her, her ID. And he let us go both times. And like that for me, Travis is having a super shocked face. Apparently, <laughs> we haven't told him this story. So I'm sure I'm ready to let you go off of that. Uh, my, I'm sassy, and I was ready to go to jail over that. Um, like that's something I'm like I I die on that hill. Um, I totally would, because it's just wrong and sick and evil. So, totally. you know, I want us to think about the fact that you know, this is my friend. We're in Oklahoma. She's done nothing wrong. We've literally come to talk about education theory as a group of Christian women in Moore, Oklahoma. I'm totally going to call it out by name. Um, and the fact that she's pulled over because she's driving at night, the wrong skin color in the wrong part of town, even to the point where there are people my parents' age group in Oklahoma City and don't still go to parts of town in Oklahoma City because they remember an actual line in town that they were not allowed to cross as people yeah. of color. And this isn't, we're not talking about hundreds of years ago. We are talking about in the last 50 years, even Liberty well, University was did great? not allow, pardon? When America was great? Yes, <laughs> back then. <laughs> and even Liberty University still had rules against interracial dating and marriage up until about the 70s and 80s. And so I think we need to really critically look at this as Christians, where part of why marriage became a big deal even in the church even was to ban interracial marriage. And so we have to own what my kids and I would call the poop sandwich, where we have the sandwich, it's made of crap, and we've taken a giant bite of it, and we don't like how it tastes in our mouth, and we don't like how it feels in our mouth. And we just need to own the fact that I made this sandwich, and it's terrible, and it is crappy. And I want to have something else as a reality for my life. And we, we can have it. And I think that's part of the frustration and the, the passion that we have is that this is something completely attainable, something that I would say Christ spoke on racism. It's a different, it, it's not the way we talk about it, of course, but there are so um, I think all Samaritans half-breeds. So, I mean, in some ways he kind of talked about it. Exactly. There are very, very easy links to make in our scriptures and it's not like we don't have a history of of fighting racism in the church and it's something that what well, church or not I, it doesn't matter uh, because you can recognize racism as bad and um i don't want to go off our notes too much so i'm gonna hold back but i, I get fired up and i get pissed off because this is a reality we can step into Equity is something we can step into. Being anti-racist as a whole group of people, be it as a religious group, be it as a, a nation, be it as um, a system of laws, that's possible. It's totally possible. And uh, it's something that needs to be fought for and fiercely and 
it's just, yeah, I don't think anything's going to be perfect. We're always going to have pain. People will always be sinful. And I think the evil spirit of racism will always exist, but it is possible for me to stand against that spirit within my own heart, to call it out in my own little communities, my friend groups, the, my, the congregation I'm a part of, the job I work at, etc. And when we all do that collectively, man, progress happens. Um, so, I think it's important for us, though, to like really um, define what it looks like for the everyday person in the macro and in the micro, because there are so many, so many instances where, you know, being black in America is just exhausting and people don't know why. And <laughs> expensive. That too. <laughs> Sorry, I was cupping my mouth. So if it seemed like I was in a tunnel, guys, it's because I was yelling and expensive. <laughs> you've not watched Good Hair, watch that movie, y'all. Oh, Good Hair is so good. Um, and that's an example of a microaggression, but on the macro level, I mean, systemically, let's call it what it is, because a lot of the micro and macro ramifications come from redlining. Where do you live? Because where you live determines where you work, determines how much money you make, determines who's in your life, determines where your kids go to school and what kind of education you're going to re receive. And if you don't know what redlining is, again, I encourage you to go do your good Googles or pick up a book. <laughs> and there are some pretty great books um, on that. Uh, if you pick up uh, The Myth of Equality, by Ken Weitzma, white guy from Oregon, uh, heavily, heavily researched, fantastic Christian guy, writes on uh, equality and racism and white privilege, etc. And he goes through a lot of detail on redlining, and he's got some great resources in that book as well. So, and there's another book I'm trying to remember what it's called. I don't know if it's The Color of Law. Um, or the color of our cities, something like that. But uh, it goes hardcore into what redlining was like. And we will also um, have a list of resources in the show notes and on our website um, by the time this podcast airs as well. So please feel free to check those out um, after or during the listening to this episode. What were you going to say, Cher? Well, and for anyone who's super linear and is saying, okay, so this is just a linear sequence of events, I would challenge you to see them as a, a cyclical series of events where um, education determines a whole bunch of things in life. So if where you live has determined your education, that, and there's a whole lot of things, whether or not you graduated high school, whether or not you had the ability to learn how to drive, because whether or not you have the ability to drive changes where you have to live in a city. It changes where you can then work. Um, education affects a whole bunch of things in your life, whether that's how much you can earn, where you can work, where you can, um, how you can travel, where you can travel. Um, there's so many things that that- Access <laughs> to food and healthcare. Food. Yeah, there are actually food deserts, that's something else. I mean, we could do a whole other episode about poverty in America. I mean, there's people who don't have access to running water. I mean, there's so many things that are tied into this where it becomes a cycle back to education and it comes a cycle back into how we've told people where they can live and we institutionalized ghettos a whole bunch of that 
in our history. If you have not watched the documentary, The 13th, I would challenge and highly recommend you watch that. Um, if you don't know anything about Jim Crow era law, um, even watching uh, the Chadwick Boseman movie that's talking about Thurgood Marshall, um, 42 about Jackie Robinson. If you're someone who's not a reader, I mean, Travis and I read a ton of books as does Jola, but I know not everyone's a reader like us. And so there are some good works of historical fiction that are based in what's happened and what's fictionalized is not the reality of racism that they have experienced. And the 13th is a documentary where when Jola and I both watched it independent of one another, she said, wait, did I just agree with Rush Limbaugh? And Newt I remember- Newt Gingrich. Newt Gingrich, that's right. Newt Gingrich. And I said, girl, I know. And so <laughs> that is something that I want to encourage us to watch no matter where you're at, because what you'll see is that there is a lot more in common that we have if we can kind of be willing to come to the table and hear one another and consider that perhaps- my experience is fundamentally different than someone else's. And you would think that Travis and I probably have more common experience since we look similar and we grew up in a similar area, but Jola and I probably have more similar experience of our upbringing and what we faced growing up. And so that is something that you wouldn't expect looking at us just by what we look like. We're going to do an episode at some point on ACEs, which are adverse childhood experiences. Um, and these two wonderful ladies have far more than I do, uh, as does my amazing wife. Uh, I have maybe one. And they have to count college, so. so I'm not sure. You're I not get a child. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know if I get to count it. Though I was pretty immature uh, up until my mid, late 20s. So, um, <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> but yeah, I think that's a great point. And I, I was just trying to highlight that. Sure. Well, I think it's also, um, I love that you mentioned that movie as well, because it's the 13th by Avery Duvenet, a excellent documentary that paints, that gives the history and, and draws the similarities into the present and kind of really focuses on what, um, what, what are the, that really focuses and paints a picture of what we're trying to show. Like we're really just trying to help um, our fellow evangelicals hold a mirror up to ourselves and say, what is my role in this system? Yeah. And, and how can I work to, um, how, what is my role in the system and how can I work to subvert it? Because along with the macros, you know, you have the micros. Um, as Cheryl was saying, we do have a lot of things in common, but something that, um, most any black person will tell you is when you come to the table with a white person, white people may not know my experience, but I can tell you, I know a lot more about the white experience than you, the white people would know about the black experience. Just be just um, because I'm a black person in America, I have had to navigate those spaces. I've learned, I've had to learn how to code switch, which is why people say I sound like a white girl all the time, mm. you know? So. I'm and, making and, an angry face right now. <laughs> you know my annoyed angry face because one of my biggest pet peeves in college is when people are like Jill I like it when you talk black and I was like excuse me you and I need to go have a conversation about how that's inappropriate and I don't think you understand what you're saying because you just said for her to speak inarticulately means that she is not speaking white because speaking black apparently is you know being um well first of all 
just the the idea that AAVE speaking exactly just just the idea that African American vernacular English or otherwise known as Ebonics is not necessarily its own language and does not get the credit for that and then like is thrown up but anyway that in and of, in and of itself is a microaggression and there are tons of other microaggressions that um, black people and people of color have to deal with on the daily be it from hair accent food whatever and those kinds of things even though they seem small they do something that's called weathering you know that and it ha it happens not only to your spirit to your soul but it also happens physically to your body and i um again that is something that i encourage you to go research and look up um but so we have the macro we have the micro yes ma'am well i just like with hair so you might be like hair really so you know usually people who are white get annoyed if they can't like have a color in their hair or protest you know or <laughs> you can't have like a faux hawk or you can't have some kind of avant-garde hairstyle now imagine that it was not all right for you or considered unprofessional for you to wear your hair the way that your hair grows naturally um or what is considered your traditional hairstyle whether that is dreadlocks um box braids cornrows bantu knots like what is traditionally and ethnically considered um, a hairstyle for your culture and heritage that that is not considered a professional haircut and Meanwhile, you have girls who are white going to Mexico and getting cornrows and wearing them at their jobs, and no one thinks anything of it. But if a woman of color wore oh my gosh, you're so cornrows, Karen. Oh, no, but seriously, and then the huge expense that comes with women of color trying to get their hair to fit within what's considered a white beauty standard, so that I mean, and we're talking thousands of dollars. If you, I, if you think I am just insane and making things up, and I've just been, you know. I, the liberal agenda has swept me up. Please go watch Good Hair or call or, Raven Simone and just ask the girl about her hair. Or find a and, black friend, because I can yes. tell you too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Let and, me tell you the amount of money I've spent on my hair. Now, part of it is because I do love to change my hair a lot. And that may have something to do with its institutionalized, right? Or, um, not institutionalized, but internalized white supremacy as well um because i have gone through phases with my hair where you know i am um natural my hair i have not relaxed it at all um in i think it's been a decade now what 10 really? years wow. yes so that's exciting um if it's not a decade, did i give you your close. last chemical relaxer I think are you, you saying did. that i'm the one who did the last one in your I hair i think you are because with that i was like i this is this is too much money. I can't I can't do this anymore. I'm but, pretty sure uh, we got into a fight about how I was like, you know that this is I'm pretty sure we got to a really deep conversation about what did. this does to your brain and systemic oppression. But then also, I mean I still deal with that now because I if you haven't seen um our picture on our um podcast Instagram, I'm the one with the bright purple hair. <laughs> And, you know, I run into that now, like, how can you be a professional with, you know, really bright colored hair? And I'm like, well, honey, if my hair isn't considered professional, the way it grows out of my head, the color it is should not be a problem. So, yeah. <laughs> so, but along with microaggressions and macroaggressions, there is another third, um, third way that racism shows up in 
um, America today is that's in silence. In that <laughs> when, when people of color, when black people speak out about injustice and be it fear, be it not knowing what to say, be it whatever, people are just quiet and not even acknowledging that that is a, a deep, 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 um, a cut to the black community, especially when it is, um, when you have people in your life who are very intimate in your intimate circle, who you say you love, um, you know, it, in order to say something, to not say anything, like, even if you don't know what to say, you say that. So yeah. it, we now know what it looks like. So let's talk about the work. How do we become ally, move into the ally space and the accomplice space? I want to jump in real quick here to lead into this. There's, um, for those of you who are fans of the Christian scriptures, there's uh, this book in the Bible, it's called James. And in chapter four, verse 17, uh, there's something that it's stuck with me since I first became a Christian. And it's whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it or refuses to do it, for them, it is a sin. And I think we could all agree that not pursuing justice for everyone, not pursuing that social flourishing and that equity uh, that we're talking about, that unity or uh, what we say in the Constitution as the pursuit of happiness and the equality of all people, you know, uh, if we're not pursuing that, that goodness of God for the earth of heaven, we pray it all the time. We say, uh, on earth as it is in heaven, but then we're just like, ah, screw that. I'm not going to live that way. Um, but if we actually care about heaven come to earth, then we know that helping to be a part of that work, sharing that reconciliation ministry with Christ, uh, if we're not helping to reconcile the racism in our community, in our own hearts, in our relationships, that's a good we know we ought to do. And if we're failing to do it, that's sin because it gets in the way of God's shalom or peace for this world. Um, so for me, that's something that guides me in my fight for racial reconciliation as an ally and knowing that at times I am an accomplice still. So what, how do, how would we defi define those two words? For our Allies and accomplices. Mm -hmm. mm. I, I think, so bringing in the nuance, uh, as a white male, I'm both. I, I would say people hate to hear this and, uh, you know, it's fine if people disagree. And again, you know, email us hello at otherhalfpodcast.com. I'd say if you're white, you're racist. I know. Um, and, and that doesn't mean you're a bigot. It doesn't mean you are filled with hate. It doesn't mean you're wearing a white hood. It means that you are born into a society, a system, a set of values that have a bias toward light skin. Um, and just like we would say as Christians, uh, you are born towards a tendency to sin to hurt people, to hurt yourself. Like we're just drawn to it, unfortunately. And, uh, and so being an accomplice is being complicit. It's someone who has benefited from systems of white supremacy and racism. It's someone who actively pursues that. 
Um, so whether it's intentional or unintentional, you are an accomplice uh, in racism, in white supremacy, but you can also be an ally. And uh, being an ally is someone I would say, uh, throw in your thoughts, Cheryl, uh, an ally is someone who jumps, as, jumps in and says, I am with you, I am for you in every way that you can think, say, and do. When I would, I mean, we've talked about this before where we're saying, you know, you are a racist. What I would say is your entire identity is not tied up in that. I would say that you are part of a system that has racist patterns of thinking and racist practices. And so the idea that your whole identity isn't racist, you're right. not to your core racist, but the idea right. of accomplice, so an accomplice to a crime, you may not have pulled the gun, like you may not have shot the gun that killed somebody in a bank robbery, but you drove the car. You were complicit with the action to the point where you didn't say, no, we shouldn't be stealing. We shouldn't have someone lose their life at the end of this crime. So, And maybe you didn't even know that it was going to be a robbery. You just thought you were giving your friends a ride. And so then as we realize that we're an accomplice to something, so you know, Travis, you quoted James, and I was over here, like, talking along with you, because so like, James is one of my all-time favorite books of the Bible. Um, so good. But part of it also is in the prophetic literature, when we go back and look at the prophets, where they're saying, you know, Israel, you need to change. Israel, you need to change. You're going to come and be conquered. Israel, you need to change. You're going to come and be conquered. The prophets over and over again tell us that when there is oppression and injustice and poverty in our community, that is a direct sign and symptom that there is corruption in our religion. And yeah. so we, and it's, he's talking specifically to Israel about their relationship with, with Yahweh, with God. And so we as Christians need to be mindful that if we are not being an ally, which means that as I realize I'm an accomplice, like as I realize I'm like, Jola, I can't, I cannot straighten your hair anymore. Like I cannot put a chemical relaxer in your hair. Like I'm done being an accomplice. Because we had this moment where she's like, no, do my hair. And I was like, no, <laughs> like we had this conversation. And even where people didn't understand me being white as part of the Black Collegiate Union in our university, they, there was a very specific reason I did that, which was to be an ally. Because it, it's because once you, you know, with, like Maya Angelou, like until you know better, like you don't do better until you know better. And once you know better, do better. Like the idea that, Ignorance is not what people are being held accountable for. It's once you know how to do better, go and do that thing. James tells us that faith without works is dead. And so as we know how to do good, making sure that we're doing that, making sure that I am standing up against poverty, standing up against um, educational inequality, standing up against, you know, where my child by the age of eight was being used as a prison statistic for 10-year forecasting for prisons based on his literacy level. Um, that's a reality as part of our nation's education system where we are doing prison forecasting um, at for eight-year-olds for 10 years out where they're going to be at 18 based on literacy. So we understand at a governance level that literacy is tied to incarceration and that is something we have to address. We have to start talking about and my husband, Chris, and I decided that none of our children, we had nine foster children, only one of which was white. Um, we decided that none of our children were going to be statistics for these literacy programs that we were like, oh, heck no. Like, all our kids are going to be literate. All our kids are going to have the support they need because 
being an ally is not just meaning I agree with you. It means I'm going to stand with you. Like Travis said, I'm going to toe this line with you. It's the same way that Christ says, you know, as you suffer, you're suffering with me. It's standing on that line, standing yes, in his footsteps, linking arms with him. And so that's, you know, one of the reasons why I suggest people go and research Representative Joe Lewis. I mean, he was a young man who showed up to be be a part of he was like i heard about this thing and then ends up marching with dr king thinking he's just hoping he could maybe have a meeting with him and i think there's times where god's wanting to kick open doors of opportunity for us but we're so afraid of what will someone think and maybe jesus is just saying come to the table and, and sit and eat and hear what someone has to say yeah and consider consider how you might stand with them or next to them or you know, Jola didn't ask me to be mouthy to that police officer. That's just the fact that I'm Al Nunnemaker's daughter. Like that is just I mean, <laughs> genetics more than anything, I think. But that's why daddy um, named you Nunnemaker. That's why dad named you Nunnemaker instead of Joe Dirt. Or, you know, so, but the idea that part of being an ally, like we said, the opposite of silence is, is speaking out. Yes. Um, being aware of the fact that if you've never been automatically followed in a grocery store or a clothing store because of a certain way that you look. Um, instead of saying, well, this is just how you need to get out of it. Be aware and look for times where that's happening to others. Um, be aware that uh, perhaps your experience with the police is different than others. If you've never been chased like by the police, which I have. So if you'd like to hear more about that story, just hit me up. Um, but like, I am probably the most criminal out of the three of them. <laughs> So like I come from a very different background. Um, but, you know, I had to start <laughs> coming to people and saying, I feel like your experience has been similar to mine. You know, I was in parts of institutionalized ghettos and reaching out, people saying, oh, baby, you don't belong here. And I'm like, that's where my dad grew up. You know, it, if you don't know, you don't know. And that's the hard part of the, if you like the knowledge quadrilateral, go look that up. We've thrown a lot of things for you to look at today, but you know, part of it is you don't know what you don't know. And then you start realizing, oh, I know what I don't know. And then you start realizing, you know what you know, and then you go, you start doing things with your knowledge and knowledge is power only if we put it to work. And I tell my kids, and I say this, I'm going to say this in my sermon tomorrow online is that <laughs> unapplied knowledge does nothing. Knowledge is only power when we apply it and put it to work. And that, that is where it needs to be something where my friends of color are coming out and saying the same thing I'm saying, and people are telling them that they're being sensitive, that they're race baiting, that they're, you know, working in identity politics where meanwhile, I'm going, okay, but I've seen my friend be pulled over for no reason. I've been with my friends of color who have been treated fundamentally differently than I have. And it's important that we use our voice of privilege to speak out for those because it sounds different because it's privilege speaking into privilege. And it's someone who looks like you, so it's more comfortable, it's safer, it makes it easier to hear a lesson from someone who looks less challenging and less dangerous because we really talk about it. Some of the root of racism is there's fear, fear of danger, fear of harm. Yeah. So for what I'm hearing, you're saying the work of an ally would be to inform yourself, be it through reading, podcasting, putting more voices in your more life. More than one friend of color. <laughs> Don't have one and stop counting. <laughs> I'm also hearing you say that we allies need to speak out to wield their privilege on behalf of the oppressed. And the fourth thing we have is that we 
as Christians, fundamentally, like this is where the root of it is. We need to pray. Amen. We pray with intention against the sin, but we are, we also pray with our feet. Like you said, faith without works are dead. So not we are we are praying against this, and we are actively living against this as well. And I would add into that that prayer is not just, dear God, please do these things. Please get rid of racism. You know, like uh, it comes down to the specifics of our lives, but it's not just about making requests. Prayer is also a time to listen to God and hear truths about yourself. It's a time to be vulnerable and see within and, uh, and hear the divine say to you, here's where you're complicit. Here's where you're doing an amazing job in all of it. I love you. I'm proud of you. Keep going, go in deeper and further in, you know, like, uh, too often we don't use that time of prayer to just be quiet and do interior work. And I think God wants to do that in all of us is to reveal ourselves. That's a famous, uh, prayer in scripture is to, uh, to seek us and know us, God. And then we want God to tell us, this is what I see. And so if we're not listening to that, uh, if we're not letting our walls down with God, we're certainly not going to let our walls down with our brothers and our sisters. Um, and if we, we don't love our brothers and sisters, we don't love God. So, um, I just, Psalm 119, I, yeah. 139, they agree with you, Travis. They say, you know, Lord, seek me and search me. See if there's any way that has iniquity, any wrong way within me. And Oswald Chambers also said, you know, we talk about how we, we say that prayer changes things. He said, most often the thing that prayer changes is you. We, we pray and often think that prayer changes the situation that we're praying for. But most often it's because you're speaking to God, God responds and he's cultivating the soil of your heart. And I think it's important for us to be willing to pray, God, how would you use me? Not just don't go use others. And this is a dangerous prayer because then you're saying, God, I want to be complicit with your will, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Boom. Uh, and I think we owe our listeners a slight apology. Uh, yes. Because you probably <laughs> tuned in and at the beginning thought we're going to talk a lot about uh, Ahmed and Brianna here. And we didn't get into the, the deeps, the depths, the deeps. We didn't get into the deeps of uh, those situations, uh, which aren't funny, even though I'm laughing. Um, we didn't get into the depths of those details uh, and tell those stories. There's a lot of information out there that you can find on those. But this is such an ongoing discussion that has uh, so many facets to it that the three of us talk about all the time. And I'm sure it's going to be heavily featured in future episodes as well. So if there were things you thought we were going to bring up that we didn't, or if you wanted to hear more about what we were saying on one piece, um, we're happy to hear that. And we are happy to discuss it more because race is important. We all feel very convicted about this, that this is a good fight we ought to be fighting and that it would be sin if we don't do it. So um, you're going to hear it a lot from us and um, so I apologize if you thought we were going to talk about those and we didn't today. Uh, this was more just about general, how do we address white supremacy? Because it's a real sin. It's a real spirit in our nation where we live in our neighborhoods and ourselves. And how do we combat that? And there's so much more to say.
There is. And like Travis said, there, this will probably come up again, unfortunately. Um, but we are not sorry to call it out. That is um, part of all of our life's work. And since we have this tiny little platform, we are going to use it um, as how God sees fit. So again, if there is anything that you heard in this episode that you would like more detail on, that you would like more dialogue on, please reach out to us at hello at otherhalfpodcast.com. You can also interact with us on Twitter and Instagram and at our website as well. So thanks for listening. Thanks for bearing with us as we um, process and dialogue this huge, huge topic. We would love to hear from you. Have a great one, you guys. Bye. Bye.